0: Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to this episode of Tatter. Tatter is largely recorded and edited in the digital media studios at Bates College, access to which is something I am very grateful for. But I do want to say that the views expressed in each episode of Tatter are in no way official views of Bates College. With all that said, here's Tatter. One of the ways that people make meaning out of the events in their lives is by telling stories. The popularity of such programs as The Moth Radio Hour and Snap Judgment, as well as story based podcasts such as Love and Radio and The Memory Palace, attests to how compelling we find stories. To paraphrase my friend Peter Aguero, When we tell stories and we can tell from people's reactions that our stories have resonated with their experience, and when we hear stories and the stories we hear resonate with our experience, it tells us, it reminds us that in his terms, we are not alone in the world. Tatter is a podcast on policy and politics, so it might not be obvious why an episode here would focus on stories, but stories matter in that arena as well. For example, people make sense of individual struggles and groups' struggles for social justice by telling stories, as when people tell stories about the U.S. civil rights movement, women's movements, labor movements, or movements for equality for LGBTQ people. What do those stories look like, and what are the risks and rewards of telling them the way they're often told? These are the kinds of issues that I recently discussed with four guests, and this episode is based on that conversation note that at one point in this episode there is so-called adult language but in any event the title of this episode is where true stories lie
1: i'm jonathan adler i'm a psychology professor at olin college of engineering and i also do some teaching at harvard medical school um, and my connection to stories really takes three forms um, first, almost all of my research is about the role of stories in people's lives. I I look at the way people make meaning out of their lives by telling stories about them, and the ways in which those stories do or do not support their mental health. I also work closely with a nonprofit um, that's based here in Cambridge called Health Story Collaborative, where we work with medical patients to help them make sense of their experiences with illness and healing. healing. Um, and then I also come with stories from, the, from a theatrical background. Um, I have a pretty strong background in theater, mostly directing, and so I'm interested in the ways in which stories bring people together and, and share experiences.
2: I'm Skylar Baer, and my experience with storytelling has primarily been with the group The Story Collider, uh, to start with, telling stories about science live on stage. But my other experiences have been with the online format, writing. Uh, doing videos and podcasts.
3: Hi, I'm Tara Clancy, um, and uh, I guess my experience is, is with the Moth. I'm a host of the Moth main stage shows, and I've told a bunch of stories, um, also on the Moth Radio Hour, as well as Snap um, Judgment and Risk. And I'm a, I'm an I'm an author of a memoir. I um I do a lot of talking about myself. Terrible
0: and you've recently been uh, one of the panelists on wait wait don't tell me
3: That's right. I was I've been a two I'm a, now I'm a return panelist on wait wait don't tell me. I think we're going to I think we're going to do it again. I don't think they, they haven't heard the last of me over there.
1: That's awesome.
0: Last but not least, Adriana.
2: Yeah, so I'm Adriana Salerno I'm a math professor at Bates College. Um, and I'm originally from Venezuela, so I'm an immigrant and a nerd. Um, I, I think my main, uh, well, so my, my experiences with storytelling come from, first of all, growing up in a family where we like to tell tell stories, tall tales, lies sometimes. And, um, the uh, and, and I feel like a lot of, of my teaching is a little bit storytelling, um, telling students stories about sort of what what the you know math is like and being a mathematician is like. I also like to write about being a mathematician. I've been uh, blogging about it for a long time. And I also have told stories here at The Corner, which is in Maine. And I told once at the Story Collider, and I love telling stories. Um, just I also love talking about myself, but I don't, I don't make a living out of it. So,
0: <laughs> For each of you, do you have favorite kinds of stories? So for me, for example, first-person narrative is one of my, as with the moth, is one of my favorite forms. Folk tales, less so. But I wonder for you, what are some of your favorite kinds of stories?
2: I like a lot of different kinds of stories. I really like the personal narrative story versus sort of like a third person perspective. I like to hear about the character development from sort of the author of the tale you're hearing. Um, I, I generally um, like, like it when there's a big personal change in the story because some, some tales are about, you know, adventures and all these outside elements coming in, like, say, like the Odyssey. And the best part of the Odyssey for me, actually, was uh, the changes of Odysseus, you know, you could see happen in the text, less so all the particular adventures he went on.
1: I'm definitely also all about the first-person narrative. Um, even as a child, I was really not that interested in fantasy or science fiction. I'm, I'm interested in stories about people, um, even if those are fictional stories about people. Uh, I think life is dramatic enough that there's um, lots to mine there. So that's definitely my preferred genre.
3: Of course, that's also my, my favorite is the, the true personal Story. I mean, I in particular, I, I mean, I also like mining stories, you know, like as much as I love the, when people get up and, and tell a story in a show or in a podcast or in the way, you know, that, that whole world that exists now. I kind of, I also like mining a story, you know, like I love that. I grew up in bars, local bars, and my favorite thing was kind of getting people to tell me their their stories, you know. I actually disagree
2: with Jonathan that I really like fiction like really like over-the-top fiction and fantasy because it allows you to explore certain aspects of what people are like without the constraints of reality is somewhat like how I feel about it sometimes of course I did say earlier I was a nerd so take that how you will um but I also love the personal narratives. I love reading uh, biographies. I love going to shows like The Corner and, and hearing uh, these stories. And uh, like Tara, I really like getting people to talk about themselves and, and, and listening to sort of all these different types of, of experiences. But I actually do think there's a place. For me, there's a place for all this sort of like not realistic stuff too because it's written by people and about people in the end. And so it really does get to what Skylar was saying too, which is this, you can tell stories about like growth and things like that with um, a little freedom that you don't have when you want things to be realistic.
0: One of the things that Adriana just reminded me of, or really both Adriana and Jonathan in, their different perspectives on fantasy is uh, you remind me of a film that I saw this, this uh, winter in spring. Saw it not once, not twice, not three times. I saw it four times. <laughs> Any guess as to what I went to see four times.
2: I know, but I already knew.
0: Okay. You can go ahead and give it away. What did I go see four times? Adriana?
2: Black Panther.
0: Uh, that is correct. I went to go so see. That's what times. I was going to guess. Uh, (laughs) so uh dear dear uh white friends of mine uh, uh, did any of you not see black panther
1: i have toddlers i haven't been to the movies in ages Uh,
0: (laughs) i will not judge you especially because you at least knew that was uh going to be at uh skylar and tara have you seen it
2: I have not. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say, and we keep talking about how we want to see it. But when I did have a chance to go back to Maine to visit Tom and we were deciding between Black Panther and a wrinkle in time, we went to go see a wrinkle in time. Cause it was like one of my favorite books as a kid.
3: So I, and I've seen it in part, I've seen it in part, um, which I know is kind of crazy, but I was like on a plane and I got to see about half of it, but I'm the same. I mean, come on. I also, I have, Two kids and uh you know, so it's it getting to the movies is like this is a difficult thing. Although I think so, yeah. but I as so my plan was like when it came out, maybe is it out already? Can you rent it on the iTunes? If I think that was my plan, you know,
0: I'm not sure, but if not, it will be available soon. That way, I'm sure. uh So, well, this will be a brief uh back and forth with Adriana then, because um, Adriana, you've seen it, right? Yep. Okay. So
2: I saw it with you, by the way. <laughs> oh fuck.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> awkward. Uh well moving That's on. <laughs> so um one of the it, I think of it as fantastical because obviously it's about this fictional kingdom of Wakanda, uh which is this place filled with African uh, black uh, people who violate all of the dominant cultural stereotypes of blacks as poor and criminal. It's this thriving uh, fictional African nation of Wakanda with technology that is is—it's part of this Afrofuturism uh, genre. So this is technology that is far in advance of what anyone actually has in the contemporary uh, real world. And it's wonderful and inspiring but at the same time it's fictional and so adriana did that did that diminish its impact at all that that it was beautiful and 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 um and they were successful but it was it stood as sort of a contrast to what is actually sadly the case for many people of color around the world that didn't diminish it at all
2: so what what i liked the most about the movie was actually the um, the antagonist or the the yeah. bad guy in quotes. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I really liked is that you saw the experience of a very frustrated, very angry African American man, and how he deals with this like fantastical world. And so I thought that relationship and his a sort of his lens and how he takes Wakanda in, like, and that, I mean, Wakanda is a world of privilege and affluence. And so, sort of that, that contrast, I think, highlighted a lot more, like, what the difficulties were for, for the, for the, uh, for Kill, Killmonger, <laughs> which is not the most serious name you could think of, but for this man who, um, who grew up in, um, Where is it that he grew up in?
0: South Central uh, Los Angeles, I believe. Certainly, uh,
2: no, I think it was it was California, but it was um, was, Oakland. Oakland, it was
1: Oakland.
2: Yeah, Oakland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's also sort of like um, tied to this community in some way that I don't want to spoil. But I think that like I think his character really was what brought that fantastical world into a more realistic context but I don't think that we would have seen his character in the same way, or it would have been just another story about a guy in Oakland. um, I think it was actually much more interesting to me because it was sort of this, this fantasy allowed us to see this, um, this point of view in a different way.
0: we should probably segue toward a story that we are all familiar (laughs) with and it's it's the story of David and Goliath and even though that story originates in the bible although there may be other versions of it in, in other religious traditions with which I'm not familiar it's a story that is often revived and used as an account for oppressed people's struggling against their oppressors. Uh, So, for example, uh, the documentary Food Chains uh, describes a labor movement in um, uh, Florida where grossly underpaid tomato uh, harvesters, the film is about their struggle uh, for better compensation from the public's supermarket chain as compelling as those stories are, and one of the things that's really compelling about David and Goliath is you can view it as demonstrating how a really smart, resourceful um, uh, little person or little group can triumph over uh, a dominant, uh, a dominant and much more powerful uh, entity. But I, I personally wonder if, there are are risks with that story. So for example, I think one risk is that it it emphasizes individual attributes uh on the part of the person who's struggling, and it doesn't do enough to emphasize the potency of structural uh forces that are obstacles to success.
1: And I actually think you the way you captured both sides of the coin there <clears throat> um, are I think they're exactly right on. And I also think, um, I think what is so compelling, at least to American audiences, about the David and Goliath story is, is that triumph. Um, it is fundamentally a redemptive story, right? It is a story about bad things that turn out good. And the theme of redemption has been sort of traced as a, as a signature American theme. It is the kind of stories that Americans resonate with and have loved really since the beginning right like the puritan narratives were also about leaving oppression for salvation um the ex-slave narratives are about that um and we see this everywhere in contemporary culture um ads have redemptive qualities to them top 40 songs have redemptive themes to them so we just love that theme and it's everywhere in american culture and i and as you pointed out, American culture tends to be an overly individualistic sort of ignoring of the broader cultural forces um, that are around us and, and have real impacts. So I think, I think it is the David and Goliath story is a classic example of a redemption sequence with the good and the bad that come from that.
2: I think there is... One more uh, issue I see with this is that this narrative actually romanticizes this kind of struggle. And you kind of feel like this, you know, um, it's its even more worthwhile if you are the scrappy underdog that like makes it through. Whereas um, I think that that a more collaborative, less dramatic story might get at the point that, you need the people at the top to help the scrappy underdog to not be so much the scrappy under, you know what I mean? I feel like there is a part of, of romanticizing like the struggle and the, and the strife and then making it through. There's also this survivorship bias. It's like for all the Davids, there's a whole bunch of people who didn't make it right? right. And so like, uh, I do think that there are some risks in the in the romantic idea of the like scrappy underdog because I think that there are a lot of scrappy underdogs that get lost in the mix because because we only see the ones that make it
1: I think too, just picking up on that really good insight, not only does do the people who haven 't succeeded or haven 't triumphed in the end get left behind, but actually there 's a burden on people to feel like they can make this story out of their lives. So in my work with Health Story Collaborative, we we do a lot of collecting of stories of people with really significant and sometimes terminal medical illnesses. And they often feel like the dominant narrative of cancer, say, is like, I became a fighter and then I triumphed. And so they're sort of doubly down and out if they can't, if A, they can't beat their cancer and B, they can't tell a redemptive story about it.
2: Yes, yes. Yeah. That is really yeah, right. I, sometimes
1: I, cancer just sucks, or sometimes the yes. little guy doesn't win. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: and we don't really have room for those stories in our culture.
2: Um, I was just going to jump in and say one thing that I think of when I think of David and Goliath stories, you know, there's that individualistic aspect of it where it's David. It's not like people versus Goliath. It's David <laughs> versus Goliath. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not like the people... <laughs> And um, and I think about that a lot now that I'm currently uh, working in Congress because a lot of things are about, like, the people and things happening as a group because that's really o- the only way things get done. But yep. the, what I was going to say more is that the, the David and Goliath story actually makes me think of a lot of white savior stories. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, like, friggin' yeah. Avatar.
0: With the crosstalk, I want to make sure it's clear, she referred to Avatar –
2: where it's like, well, this group of, like, really intelligent, um, interesting, amazing beings that can't do things that, you know, or can do things that humans can't, but they can't beat them, and they're big machines, but the one yeah. white dude <laughs> who, like, inhabited yeah, yeah. a fake body, he's, because he fell in love, and then he can save the day, and so, like, at the end of the day, the story is about him and not about the people, which it really should be about. Mm-hmm. Um, because, because it's really about their, their struggle to survive and their struggle. And, but they couldn't do it without, um, without him. And so, and so there are a lot of classic stories like that. And to just go back to, I don't know who made this point, but it's like, you have to somehow be your own hero. And if you're not set up to be a hero and you're just set up to be a collaborator or supporter, that's like not worth enough. Um, mm-hmm. and that's not true. That's just not true.
0: (laughs) And even in Black Panther, there's a little bit of that white savior. uh, uh, Oh, yeah. But you'll have to see it. Um, Well, part of what motivated me to uh, organize this conversation was my own concern that as powerful as stories are, that what they focus the reader attention or the listener's attention to is individuals, the hero, Mm
1: -hmm. the villain. Mm -hmm.
0: And and often there are heroes and there are villains, but sometimes our outcomes in life are affected by forces that are not constituted in some personality. Um, Institutional discrimination is a thing, but I don't know that you can represent that in a story. So I guess my question is, do you think there's any way that stories can actually uh, be compelling and represent these depersonalized uh, forces, or is that something that just defies, defies story? Hmm.
2: (laughs) That's a really good question. Well, I'll talk about a problem that, that I find in my career which is I'm a mathematician, right, and all the stories that are told about mathematicians are sort of these tortured geniuses, and it's some some other fields have this like arts and all that, and like and and most of us are not tortured or a genius we're we're just working on math, but then that's we've found that in research that 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 is a huge barrier for diversity in math because a lot of women and a lot of people of color and especially women of color do not identify with any of these archetypes. And so these archetypes can be really detrimental. But on the other hand, they do make for really good, interesting, dramatic stories. And so then there's the question of like, when are we storytelling because the story is interesting? And when is it like a responsibility to say like, well, this is not the only narrative. I don't know. It's very hard.
3: I think that people, when they, when they feel like they didn't, triumphs or they did they aren't they, they the hero they think there's no story to tell so it's like you know it's hard to kind of like get somebody up to the mic you know like I remember what one of my favorite moments when you know I was talking to my my all the people in my life and so I grew up you know sort of New York native New York white working class mostly Italians and I was asking that my mother I said you know why was it, do you think that, it, you know, basically what we figured out was that it had been something like 73 years since A Tree Grows in Brooklyn was written, and that that was the last book written by a working class New York woman about us, right? And it was like this mm-hmm. crazy statistic, and it was very frustrating for people. But, and then here I was writing this book, and that was part of my motivation. And I said to my mother, I said, you know, why do you think that is? We had this group conversation. It was shot on video. And, um, my mom said, um, well, we were just too busy working um that's why we didn't write our own stories and then she was sort of like well and also like what you know what is there to to say about our lives why are our lives interesting and i was like wow you know um and i can't go into like the whole of my background and my story and my mom's story but i've told stories about me and my mom and their very interesting life on the moth and to think that she thought she didn't have a story you know she thought mm-hmm. that she didn't you know, that it wasn't some because I guess, you know, she's not now like some rich lady or, you know, because she didn't have this kind of like redemptive, totally, you know, transformative story. And so I think what we struggle with, and even I know at the moment we're trying to get those kinds of po- folks just up to the mic, you know, to even know, even to be able to answer your question, to get those kinds of stories, you know, from out of people
2: the word genius I was reading an article recently like the root of the word genius is actually like something like male essence uh so like it's very <laughs> I mean, I'm serious it's like it's like oh you go God. to like the root of the word and it like literally has like a male element like locked up in the oh. definition of like the meaning of that word um because people you know like oh he's a genius but people don't say that about women as much but like there's sort of this like you know what genius means is like the struggling genius is like you know you're gonna do this great thing, you're gonna make a thing or you're gonna find a thing and and that's what science is and and it's not about um collaborating right which is a huge huge important thing in science and math is to collaborate because together you can you can find like out amazing things about the universe, but if you all play in your sandbox looking for your little like genius rock buried in there you know, you're probably not going to get very far. And so, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the time when I hear about female scientist stories, a lot of it has to do with like, sort of that people pay attention to her, like David and Goliath stories about like, well, she was sexually discriminated against and then she changed the system, but they aren't, I feel like I don't hear as many stories of like, wow, like she got all these people together to do this great thing. And now we like, you know, X, Y, Z, and there are a few stories out there, but that tends not to be, like, the focus of these great collaboration stories, which I think are sometimes the best thing going on in science right now, especially with diversity, because when you have more diversity, there's, like, lots of different things to collaborate about, Um, but again, like Tara said, a lot of these people don't think that they have a story to tell, because they didn't, like, climb a mountain or whatever, Um, and, but, but there is so much to tell there, and An author that I actually really like to read um, is Richard Russo because he writes these like hilarious stories about blue collar towns in like New England and and New York. I mean, I don't know if everyone here enjoys his books, but they're just about like normal people, and that's one of the things I love about those books. And not everything is good, and not everything is bad, and they're just so they're so enjoyable because they're, I think, in some ways more relatable.
0: So I want to jump in and direct a question to John, and and then we'll probably pivot to Tara because the question that I'm putting to John is about a story of Tara's. And John, I'm going to do my best not to set you up to mansplain Tara's uh, story to her. I
1: promise. <laughs>
0: um, Thank you. I'll, yeah, I'm here to help. Uh, so. <laughs> Tara has this amazing story, which I'm going to include a link to on, uh, the, uh, webpage for the podcast episode. And the story appeared, uh, was published in the New York times. It's called Hail Mary softball. Uh, and actually rather than, uh, give my own summary, Tara, can you give us, uh, what, what's, what's the, uh, 30 to 45 second version of Hail Mary softball?
3: Okay. uh, The 32nd version. Um, So when I was a kid, I played on a a Catholic youth league in in Queens, uh, wherein all of the girls, this was a league that had both boys and girls, but the girls, I mean, we didn't play against one another, but there was a boys' side and a girls' side, uh, and all the girls played on cement. We played on blacktop, and all of the boys were given the very few grass and dirt uh, baseball fields uh, in New York City. Um, even um, across ages, and even when we were at the, at an age where we, our pitch speeds were the same, you know, uh, we played on uh, on concrete, and so in some very bizarre. Uh, <laughs> set of circumstances essentially one um one faithful season my team um sort of in this crazy moment of of just rebellion started sliding on asphalt as a Um, (laughs) you know, just as a a, as a way to to because we wanted to win first and foremost, but I think somewhere in the subconscious of some very young little girls, we were this was a a a rebellion, um, and there was never a rule against sliding on asphalt, so it became kind of controversial because they had to ultimately let us do it, even though we were really getting hurt. Um, so is that a good thirty second version?
0: That's perfect. Is that enough? And and one of the things that. I love about the story is the richness of the characters, everyone from you and your dad to Michelle, who was the first girl to slide on asphalt. But one of the other characters I would argue in that story is a character who's not personified and that character is sexism. And, and we see that mm-hmm. character in what you've just described as this uh, policy of relegating the girls uh, teams to uh, hardtop. Uh, and the boys got to play on on the dirt uh, or grass fields, and so for me, that makes me wonder if the way in which systemic factors are more likely to be represented in stories is abstractly uh, and uh, and implicitly in the way that. I don't think the word sexism is ever actually used in your story but you see that it's there in this in this practice and so John as someone who actually has a has a background in drama I wonder if you would agree with my I mean what I'm I'll put it I'll put it perhaps more strongly than I actually believe but is an is an author more likely to successfully represent um, a, a systemic barrier to equality by representing it Uh, in implicit and abstract terms, uh, as Tara did in her story?
1: You know, that's a good question. I don't don't know that I have a systematic insight into that. I actually, and of course, the like immediate examples are not coming to the top of my mind right now, but I can think of ways in which both sort of dramatic portrayals, but also individual people's narratives represent systemic forces in both these kind of abstracted ways, like you're talking about the symbolism of the the you know the concrete and with it the hard, cold, infertile concrete versus the life-giving dirt and grass, or really as personified characters. Um, I've done I've done some studies um, of people's stories about their experiences with various mental illnesses or psychotherapy and quite often people, you know, make their depression into a real character. They give it a name, they give it a a weight and other kinds of physical qualities. So I don't know that representing things abstractly versus in a personified way, I, I don't know that either one of those is destined to be more effective. I think that the sort of rhetorical or narrative abilities of the storyteller can capitalize on either one of those modes successfully.
0: Bull Connor was the racist sheriff uh, who directed the dogs and the hoses on uh, the young protesters in Birmingham, Alabama. So he's a personification of of white supremacy, one could argue. That's one way of representing these systemic forces, but another would be much more abstract. Do do any any of the rest of you have any thoughts on which of those is going to be the more successful way of representing systemic uh, barriers to equality?
2: I think that people relate better to personified versions, like they can understand like a character as a concept much better than systemic forces, which I think is one of the reasons why we struggle so much with changing the system, because it's like, I think it's hard for people to conceptualize. That's my opinion. But I think it's probably more realistic to have them as a sort of abstract systemic I don't know issues in a story than just a personalized uh, or personified uh, character of it.
0: So that's all of the conversation that I'm going to feature in this episode. But before I wrap up, I want to say that for me as a social psychologist, this conversation raised Interesting questions, or at least questions that I find interesting, about the impact that stories told about social justice have on their audiences and their audiences' support for or opposition to policies that might increase uh, equality. And I hope that this conversation may have raised such questions for other social psychologists. At the same time, I'm a podcaster and a filmmaker, and This conversation has raised questions for me there about the potential risks and rewards of, say, relying upon the David and Goliath story form, and I hope that this conversation may have raised such questions for other podcasters and filmmakers. But in any case, that's it for Tatter, and I want to thank Jonathan and Skylar and Tara and Adriana for taking the time to talk with me. If you want to learn more about them, visit tatter.fireside.fm where there are links to the Health Story Collaborative that Jonathan mentioned. There is a link to Skyler's appearance on the Colbert Report, and I'm serious. There's a link to Tara's essay, her story really, in the New York Times titled Hail Mary Softball. And there is a link to Adriana's blog. If you appreciate Tatter and want to show your support, which I would appreciate please visit patreon.com slash tatter that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash tatter where you can watch a video about tatter and potentially choose from multiple levels of support each of which will bring a specific reward to you if you choose it for now i'm grateful for your listening and i hope that you will be well